evening. In 2017, Liam Fox famously com commented that negotiating Brexit should be one of the easiest deals in human history. Well, it hasn't quite turned out that way. Of course, Prime Minister Theresa May used to say quite simply that Brexit means Brexit. But over the years, many have been at a loss uh, to try to work out what Brexit actually means. The negotiations have dragged on. They've raised issues we'd barely thought of before. And the whole process has seemed very uncertain. The UK ceased being a, a, an EU member last January. But what kind of relationship we'll have with the European Union uh, from the new year onwards has apparently uh, remained very unclear. Today, we still don't know if there will be a deal or not. So are we any wiser on what difference we might see on January the 1st and after? Might 2021 herald new surprises on Brexit? When will Brexit be completed? And will the Brexit we expected be delivered? Where does this all leave Boris Johnson, the UK government, and indeed the EU27? Our panel this afternoon is tasked with helping us to understand what we might expect under different scenarios and the implications going forward. We're not debating whether Brexit is a good or a bad thing. Rather, we're trying to explain what has happened and what might happen. And we have a panel of experts to guide us in the sequence that they'll be uh, speaking to us. Jill Rutter is Senior Research Fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe, and she will be discussing the choices that the British government currently faces. Tony Travers is Associate Dean of the School of Public Policy here at the London School of Economics. Tony will comment on the politics and the ramifications. Vicky Price is Chief Economic Advisor at the Centre for Economics and Business Research and a former joint head of the UK Economic Service, the government's economic service. And she'll help us to assess the economic implications. Katie Hayward is Professor of Political Sociology in Queen's University of Belfast and a senior fellow at the UK Inner Changing Europe uh, think tank, where she leads a project on the future and the status of Northern Ireland. We look forward to her comments also. Today's panel is part of the LSE programme on Brexit and beyond, which is organised by the European Institute and the School of Public Policy. You can find podcasts of our previous events on the LSE website and details of our upcoming events in, new year, in the new year. For, of course, Brexit will be an agenda which is with us for some time to come. Just search for, uh, in Google, LSE programme on Brexit and beyond. Today's discussion is also being recorded, and again, it should be available as a podcast subsequently. You, the audience, can send us your comments on the discussion as we proceed uh, using Twitter, and we suggest the hashtag, hashtag LSE Brexit. Later, we'll invite you to put your questions to the panel, and you can use the Q&A facility at the bottom of your Zoom screens. Uh, please, uh, if I can ask you to keep those questions very short so we can get through many and I can read them uh, easily. 
I've asked each of our panelists to kick off with a brief opening statement, and we'll then uh, pick up uh, themes and points for the discussion uh, later. So it's my great pleasure to welcome our panel and to invite uh, Jill Rutter to start us off. Jill. Thank you very much, Kevin. And uh, I was asked to say where things are. I've got five minutes. Uh, so I'm hoping you've all been keeping up with the debate because uh, it's quite a big thing uh, to do that. So what I thought I would focus in on is what we might call Johnson's choice, the choice that is confronting the prime minister. And I think vitally for all of us, what considerations might weigh in his mind as he sits at his desk and maybe even pens two articles to decide whether he's going to go for a deal or no deal. We know that the next deadline, deadlines come and go, the next deadline is Sunday. So what does he need to do? What's the case for a deal? What do we know of the issues? We know the issues, same as they've been since the start. The two difficult issues have been fish. What are the terms of continued UK, uh, EU access to UK waters? Are we now a sovereign, independent coastal state? And the second one is, what commitments do we make to the EU to give them guarantees we won't undercut them, the so-called level playing field, and how will those be enforced? the so-called set of governance issues. So that's the place that we're debating. So what might Johnson think if he thinks he might go for a deal? How do you pitch that? Well, first of all, he promised a deal. After all, he fought the election last year on an oven-ready deal, uh, even though that really only applies to the withdrawal agreement, and he would have delivered. He can point to achieving UK objectives. This will, more or less, be a Canada-style tariff-free deal that leaves the UK quite a long way outside the EU's regulatory orbit. The UK can pursue its independent trade policy. Indeed, the Department for International Trade has been racking up a number of continuity agreements, which it hopes to make the basis for deeper agreements. Our businesses can go on trading with the EU, open brackets, but on significantly worse terms and with a lot more costs than now, close brackets, but also benefit from that global Britain agenda of opening up trade where the EU has feared to tread. We've taken back control of our money. We won't be making a financial contribution to the EU anymore. We've taken back control of our borders. Free movement ends definitively on the 31st of December. There's no more, well, more or less, no more pesky commission telling us what to do or no ECJ jurisdiction, well, if you ignore bits in the withdrawal agreement about citizens' rights, which expires over after eight years, and about Northern Ireland, the excellent Katie Hayward will go more to that. There will be more fish for British fishers. There aren't huge numbers of them, but that will be writing the very long-standing grievance about the duffness of the common fishery policy. If he gets a deal, there will be some sort of deal on, a, on security cooperation, that's worth having. It's a much lower level of security cooperation than we have now. And the UK is very unlikely to have anything like the access it has now to EU databases. But the worst things of just having to fall back on a network of ancient conventions will have been avoided. And it will be another great British triumph and the dawn of Britain's excellent new start. So that's the case for his deal. But... The case against going for the deal will be he'll have to own the disruption at the borders on 1st of January. 
No one will compare that to the no-deal counterfactual. There will still be an economic hit, estimated long-term at the OBR at 4%, uh, estimated by others to be a bit higher, depending on what you think about the dynamic effects. He will have had to move off his maximalist starting position on fish. There will be some EU fishing boats coming into UK waters for some time yet. And he may very well have to defend some residual link to the EU, slightly constraining his sovereignty on level playing field. We might not be the sovereign actor we hope to be. So he'd have to defend his deal against cries of sellout. And another big, big plus, I think, for Boris Johnson, if there's a deal, is it puts the Labour Party in a big quandary. Does it support or not support that deal? So that's the case for Boris Johnson if he's writing for a deal. So why then might he think that no deal is more attractive? This, after all, is a decision he has to make. So no deal. He stood firm for Britain versus an EU that still refuses to accept what Brexit means and has still been trying to impose their rules on us through the back door. Showing that no British government will be prepared to be tied to EU rules in perpetuity and subject to those caveats before the ECJ is gone for good. It's taken back control not just of money and borders, but of laws too. And the people's mandate is delivered. The EU is, by its nervousness, showing that it really is worried about what a competitive UK outside the single market can do. So they agree with me. Uh, as Boris Johnson, that actually there's a huge big gain from being able to do things in a less bureaucratic, more nimble way. Disruption, yes, but actually that disruption will bear that in the name of freedom. And anyway, it's the EU's fault that there's any disruption there. And moreover, the British government will not be shackled by pesky state aid rules and can stand full square between British business and farming to make them fighting fit for the new world of opportunity. But yet, will you really do that? There's disruption in a deal, but there's much more disruption in no deal. And those tariffs are particularly high in two areas, on farming, farmers very unhappy, particularly livestock farmers, and the car industry, which may be threatening job losses. Can be blamed on the EU, but people will also say that could have been avoided if only you'd done a deal. Gives the opposition an open goal. They can accuse you of a failure of statecraft. After all, you said you could do a deal. Even Liam Fox thought he could do a deal, uh, as Kevin reminded us. And it plays into that accusation of serial incompetence. Some sectors, the sectors that will struggle are not those that have been affected by COVID. COVID has basically closed down uh, non-tradable services. The sectors affected by no-deal Brexit are the traded goods sectors. Basically, you manage to create an almost perfect storm. And it could go further than that. A no-deal Brexit will give impetus to the Scottish nationalists, the SNP. That's one reason we're told why Michael Gove is keen on a deal. And it will deepen that Irish sea border. More on that from Katie. And Brexit will go on and on. You want to give Britain a new start. But at some point, you're going to have to go back and talk to the EU, not least because some of those patchwork contingency measures they're putting in place are all date stamped and will expire quite soon. There'll be an endless debate 
about when negotiations restart and on what terms. And enthusiastic as you might be on Britain's new start, you might find that Brexit is far from done at the end of 2020. Brexit is here to stay. So that is the choice I think Boris Johnson will be contemplating as he sits there now. By Sunday, maybe we'll have a better idea of which way he's plumped. Thank you, Jill, very much indeed. Um, Tony? Okay, thanks. And uh, good to see my co-panellists and indeed you, Kevin, again. Um, I, I'm going to talk about the impact on of the Brexit process over the last four years on the British political system, which I, uh, to summarise what I'm going to say is uh, rather less than I for one would have expected. Uh, and let's just begin with the Conservatives, really, who, after all, triggered Brexit. Uh, the Conservative leadership at the time in David Cameron thought that they could sort out the splits in the party, as Harold Wilson had in 1975. It didn't go so well for him. He resigned the next day after losing the referendum. Mrs May then struggled with it for three years, often uh, in a very dismally uh, awkward way politically. And then she went and Boris Johnson then took over and won an 80 seat majority. So in the best traditions of the Conservative Party's capacity to win throughout, uh, they remain the dominant party of British government as they have for so very long. So that so it's not been so bad for the Conservatives so far could change, of course. So resilient Conservative Party. Uh, which has come through still in control, amazingly. Labour, on the other hand, and, and um, Jill's just referred to this, you know, is, is even now struggling with a sort of existential problem of how to handle, actually how to handle both uh, Brexit and COVID, uh, because they find themselves endlessly having to defend appearing to undermine the national interest. Penny Mordaunt's been accusing them of this today in Parliament. And the truth is, uh, it looks as if Keir Starmer is positioning himself to support any deal that is suddenly done. Uh, and the reason for that is he doesn't want to appear or he doesn't want his party to appear to be um, undermining uh, Brexit with his famous red, those red wall constituencies in the Midlands, in the north in particular, but also in the Midlands. He needs to, as he were, allow Brexit to happen and not appear to be a Remainer party on the grounds that I suppose the Remainers will still see Labour as slightly more pro-Remain, but he doesn't want lots of Leavers to think uh, that he's terribly pro-Remain. So, so the, the Labour Party itself has um, so continues to struggle with these two issues, including Brexit. And although it's made some progress in the polls against the Conservatives, miraculously, and of course COVID's had an influence on this as well, uh, you know, on a, on a good day for Labour, they're running the Conservatives, you know, 40-40. It's still level pegging in the polls. So, but these two parties remain as the main parties. They've survived all of this. So in that sense, the um, politics of Brexit haven't radically altered those parties. One way that they may do, and, and Jill also referred to this, is in Scotland, where the outcome of the Brexit process could yet be uh, the straw on the poor old camel's back of independence, uh, leading to the possibility of a second or the at some point the near inevitability of a second referendum, 
which is quite a big gamble for the SNP, by the way, because if they lose, if they were to fail to win an independence referendum twice, that would really uh, slightly undermine their credibility. But if Brexit did go badly in the way Scot- uh, it was presented to and the way it affected Scotland, that might actually begin the process of breaking up the union. So uh, very important. And we'll hear more about that, no doubt, uh, in, when Katie speaks about Northern Ireland. So, of course, to some extent, in trying to disentangle what Brexit's done to politics, you can't escape the fact that COVID has distracted us all from Brexit. For much of this year, it's been COVID, COVID, COVID in the media, and Brexit's only made a kind of struggling comeback in the last 10 days or so. Um, and I think looking forward and to the impact of all of this on politics, one, and I'm sure uh, Vicky's going to refer to this, one of the curiosities of Brexit is that the final end of transition, the end of everything from January the 1st, will coincide with rapid growth in the UK economy, assuming that the vaccine works and the economy starts to move back to something like normal next year, whatever normal is. Then next year will be a year of sharp economic growth. And that will be the first visible sign, apparently, of what Brexit did. So I'm not saying it's because of Brexit, but it will complicate understanding what the impact of either a thin deal or no deal is on the British political system. So um, lastly, um, as I come up to my five or so minutes, um, As I said at the beginning, I'm struck by how the impact on mainstream British politics, in my view, and on the political parties, has been curiously rather less than I would have expected of four and a half years of epic struggle affecting all aspects of British political life, which is not to say that there couldn't be long term impacts. not least of which because I'm struck at even as we speak about the curious lack of detailed plans, either for no deal if it were to happen or reshaping the economy, whatever happens. And those things are, I think, very odd absences in the whole of the UK's political system at the moment. But just beyond that, I'd say it, you know, it's inevitable that an impact as big as Brexit on top of an impact as a, a consequence, sorry, on top of uh, a an event as big as COVID is going to change the political landscape. It will change uh, the economic landscape. And I think it will change cultural and societal attitudes in ways that are very hard to predict at the moment. So just one final thought for the Conservative Party, which I've sort of said as, as ever done remarkably well through all of this, they're going to have to decide if they're going to be a party of free global trade or a party of protecting jobs in the places that voted for Brexit. And that is a very hard call for a party which contains lots of senior politicians who like to be global free traders, but who are now have an, a voter base which actually wants the world to be a bit more like it used to be in the past with jobs protected uh, and so on. So um, even though I'd say the impacts have been relatively limited so far, I can see that they could become much greater as, the, as Jill has said. Uh, this is only just, we've only just begun uh, to quote the song. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Tony, very much. And that um, leads us very nicely to Vicky and the economic dimension. Thank you very much. What I'll do is I'm going to share my screen because we agreed uh, in advance that somebody has to share some slides just to change the, the pattern a bit. And the really good thing, as we were discussing with Kevin earlier, 
is actually bad for the economy, but really good thing for this presentation is that we don't have a deal yet, which, which means that I can show some of my no deal slides, which otherwise I would have just thrown out of the window. So here we go. I'll try and share it. Okay, I hope that's come through. I don't know whether you can see it yet. Yeah. And I'm going to go into my full screen. It's a bit slow usually. There we go. Okay, so um, I have to rattle through them. There are quite a lot of them, but bear with me. So uh, the first thing to bear in mind is that we have actually uh, done rather worse than uh, most other countries that we're comparing ourselves with. And also the forecasts for next year are pretty bad for the UK. Uh, now, you may wonder why we've done so badly. Well, um, the government has said that perhaps COVID uh, is a problem in the sense that uh, we are more of a service economy than some other countries. And that's really the reason for it, uh, because all the face to face contacts had to be stopped and therefore we suffered more. Uh, but in reality, of course, uh, there are two things. We went into lockdown later. Maybe some of the policies uh, were inappropriate in terms of how to deal with the health issue. But also there is a suggestion and there was a very interesting article in the, the times just a few days ago that uh, tony pointed out uh suggesting that in fact perhaps we should be wondering whether it is partly brexit related and it's really interesting because when you look at what's been going on uh, in relation particularly to business investment what you found is that uncertainty has increased very significantly in the last few years certainly since uh, the um actual vote. Uh, that's when we started looking at the Bre Brexit uncertainty index. And I'm referring to this, which is Nick Bloom and Bank of England that have produced this in, in the latest publication. Uh, and that shows that obviously there was some Brexit uncertainty, uh, which then this index started going up. Uh, and when we reached the various deadlines, and you remember all these deadlines that were missed, were all deadlines when uh, we, this panel more or less, uh, was doing an LSE event. Um, it has been going up and down depending on whether we thought we'd leave or not leave, uh, whether the deal, uh, whether the parliament would vote, would vote everything down or not. Anyway, um, and here we are now, of course, uh, leaving and the Brexit uncertainty index has gone up. So that uh, affects investment very significantly. And if you look back, you will no probably notice that we have had a disproportionate fall in investment in the UK in relation to other countries. Um, because of Brexit. And that, of course, affects productivity growth, and it will affect our prospects in the future as well. Uh, and when you look at what businesses have been doing, this is another interesting uh, um, graph, which gives here the number of transactions that have taken place. It's both uh, M&A transactions and greenfield investments. And what it shows in the more solid line is UK firms the number of transactions they've been involved in uh, with the rest of Europe. Um, and what you see is that for quite some time, they were more or less the same as those transactions from countries outside the EU, other OECD countries that were investing in Europe. But since the referendum, uh, whereas Europe didn't look particularly exciting as a place to invest in, we have carried on, um, in fact, investing in uh, elsewhere. And of course, we have seen that accelerating in the financial sector recently with lots of funds moving across and uh, loads of companies setting up uh, in uh, other parts of the EU in order to avoid some of the negative impacts of Brexit. So that is the past. What about the future? Well, COVID has been a, a main short-term problem without any doubt. And a lot of what happens in the future will depend on whether the vaccine works. And as Tony was suggesting, perhaps some of the, uh, the impacts of Brexit aren't going to be felt uh, 
in in relation to figures for GDP for next year that are very discernible. Nevertheless, uh, even in the Bank of England forecasts, the latest ones, they have also made an assumption that Brexit might take around 1% of GDP, possibly more uh, next year. And that is, of course, the assumption of a proper deal and uh, a proper free trade agreement. Uh, we'll avoid a recession. We will uh, be a double recession. We'll come out of this uh, but Brexit will nevertheless keep things uh, slightly below where they would otherwise have been. As I said, we may not feel it particularly, but it's still going to be there. And we know from all these firms that are complaining right now about the impact that even an FTA will have in terms of the ease of doing business with Europe. Interestingly, when you look longer term, this is where the hit comes. There is now general agreement that um, either an FTA uh, or a no-deal Brexit, of course, it would be worse, are going to have much longer impacts on the UK economy than uh, COVID itself. Of course, COVID may still be around for a while, uh, but in the long term, it's going to be considerably less significant, uh, whereas, uh, in fact, all the government uh, work that had been done did suggest that a no-deal Brexit would reduce UK GDP by uh, almost 8% after 15 years uh, and We'll have, we'll have a 5% decline with an FTA. Much depends, of course, on what type of FTA. And right now, if there is a deal, it's quite likely to be a skinny deal. In other words, a very hard Brexit type deal, uh, which may, in fact, lead to more of a decline than would otherwise be the case. What will that mean for individual sectors? I think that's the interesting thing about bringing COVID and uh, also Brexit together. These are forecasts by the OECD of what's a no-deal Brexit uh, would do. It would affect particularly uh, sectors that are, that are impacted by tariffs, of course, uh, in terms of export, motor vehicles and, and transport more generally. Uh, but you can see that actually a no deal does affect as you go down the list. Uh, it gets down to finance and insurance also being affected. And that is quite significant because, of course, there are huge non-tariff barriers that exist in um, the service sector. And of course, the financial sector is one where by now we should have had some agreement. In fact, by July, June that passed, we should have had an agreement on what the equivalence regimes were likely to be uh, in, in uh, uh, between the two of us, the, uh, the UK and, and the EU, or rather there should have been an agreement uh, and, and some announcement by each of the, those two parties in terms of how they were going to approach uh, equivalence in the future. And that statement has not come, and it leaves quite a lot of um, financial institutions uh, in, in a bit of a limbo because obviously they're not going to have passport uh, passporting arrangements anymore, no mutual recognition for any third country. Uh, but, of course, we haven't been declared a third country yet, and that makes life difficult. And, of course, if you look at the longer-term issues, uh, this is the OBR scenarios. The unemployment figures get considerably worse. And the one to look at here is uh, the WTO scenario um, under a number of different assumptions, because, of course, you have the virus, if it's uh, dealt with easily or not dealt easily. But you can you see what types of unemployment rates we might have uh, if you superimpose the WTO uh, scenario. In other words, no deal for um, the UK. So it means a very substantial uh, this, um, deterioration in the employment situation in the UK with a no deal. Uh, what you've also got um, in an OECD study that came out in December, uh, it looks at what happens to the government deficit and to the government debt to GDP ratio. In all those cases, it gets worse. Um, if you have uh, 
a um, uh, no-deal uh, Brexit, but also if you have an FTA. So you get worse debt-to-GDP ratio, uh, you collect less tax, uh, but that is, of course, because your economy is growing less fast uh, in all those scenarios. And of course, I mean, the reason it is that we are uh, trading with the EU a lot, lot more than we do with anyone else. And, uh, and of course, right now, the chances of a US-UK trade deal have declined because of Biden, but the rest of the countries in Europe matter hugely. And the reality is that we have now signed quite a lot of deals with uh, um, various countries to continue the EU arrangements that existed while we were still in the EU. Uh, the latest one is Singapore, signed today, December the 10th. Um, nevertheless, all those countries, if you look at the data and the exports that we had, the trade we had uh, with them so far, um, they account for something like 11% of our trade. Uh, whereas if you look at the EU, it accounts for 45% of uh, our exports of goods and services. Uh, what does it mean for the future? And this is where COVID and of course uh, Brexit come together. What we've seen so far is that despite the fact that parts of our economy such as the service sector suffered quite significantly and lots of people uh, either lost their jobs or were furloughed, manufacturing has done reasonably well. And if you look at the latest data, yes, we got some bad figures for October in the sense that GDP grew but didn't grow very fast, mainly because of service decline. Manufacturing has maintained growth for a number of months now. What is likely to happen, if you look at the slides that I showed you earlier, manufacturing will be particularly badly affected by no deal. Also, it will be affected by an FTA because of the extra restrictions uh, in terms of checks and controls and safety requirements and rules of origin, etc. So it's going to be a, a double whammy, if you like. So it's going to hit the economy uh, negatively in more ways than one. Than one, and that is really the issue uh, and of concern about where we might be going. So finally, just to remind ourselves how important services are. The EU is the one area where we do actually sell loads of our services more generally, but financial services in particular. But if you look across the service sector, there are loads and loads of areas where the uh, most areas, in fact, uh, where um, trade because of um, non-tariff barriers is going to become much harder. And as you know, the EU today has announced some unilateral decisions to allow transport at least to carry on, whether it's air or, or um, uh, by, by boat or by uh, car somehow, uh, trains, uh, to continue for a while un, um, uh, unhampered by a no-deal scenario, which may well be what we end up with. So I will close here with just the, the reminder that no-deal is pretty bad news for the UK, but any Brexit seems to be pretty bad news anyway. Thank you. Thank you, Vicky, very much indeed. Uh, and um, let's now move to Katie. And uh, I imagine issues of Ireland and Northern Ireland and Brexit. Katie. Right. Hello, Kevin. And hello, everybody. From uh, Greetings from Belfast. I'm really delighted to be on this panel today uh, for two main reasons. Firstly, it's the LSE, of course, um, and I want to uh, pay particular tribute to the LSE Brexit blog, uh, which is managed so efficiently and which was kind enough to publish a piece of mine yesterday. Uh, it's really, uh, it's a great contribution to all our Brexit debates. And also, um, I'm grateful because you're talking about Northern Ireland. 
And I will give a wee bit of detail in relation to the protocol, but I do think that even the very situation in which Northern Ireland has been put by Brexit just reveals quite how much um, that Brexit will transform the United Kingdom as a state. Um, so I'm going to look at two dimensions. First is the question of where we are now. Um, and I'm pleased to say we're a little bit clearer as to where we, where we are and where we're going in Northern Ireland, at least, um, compared to the way we were at the beginning of the week. And then I'll just note some un unresolved questions that, that still need to be addressed looking ahead. Um, so, yes, progress made this week. In some ways, I suspect there was an intention to sort of clear the decks of Northern Ireland um, for a while to concentrate on the UK-EU deal. And from our point of view over here, that's been very welcome. Essentially, this, this agreement in principle that we've seen uh, from Gove and Sefcovic was really just to implement uh, the agreement that had been already made. Um, um, and it's just, we're getting, we haven't yet seen the detail. Apparently it's going to be published um, this evening in a command paper, but there are some really important things that we can be uh, pleased about. So for example, on the movement of goods between GB and NI, apparently there's gonna be a trusted trader scheme. So a new initiative um, that, that'll help uh, keep the movement of goods flowing, um, even in the event of a no deal between GB and NI. We have some uh, good news that we'll continue to get our, our shells full of chilled meats and uh, food products, uh, at least for three months anyway, uh, as they waive the export um, uh, health certificate requirements for certain things. Um, we're also gonna have a supply of medicine for human and veterinary use uh, for the next 12 months anyway. That's also good news. Um, NI to GB, they're going to not have to have the exit summary declarations, which was a tokenistic thing apart from anything else. That's good news. Decisions apparently around agriculture and fish subsidies, also good. And the EU will have a monitoring presence. So that will also reassure the EU side that this isn't a huge uh, leap in the dark as far as they're concerned. So um, less ambiguity than there was confirmation from both sides that there's an intention to um, in implement the protocol as fully as they can on the 1st of January. That's all good news. A deal would make a huge difference still um, 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 for various... Bye which I'm happy to talk about. Um, so yeah, so what are the unresolved questions? Well, just in relation to those details, so businesses have been issuing um, many, many questions on the actual practicalities of Brexit and operating the protocol for some time. We're still, for example, waiting to know about uh, what will happen for parcels coming from GB to NI. Um, will we get our Amazon deliveries, for example? Those things are still to be resolved. But I think the biggest question is how will, um, how will we operate the system that is the protocol um, without the means of operating it? So without going into too much detail, it's, it's very clear that the mechanisms for implementing the protocol that have been, um, that are being rolled out, such as goods vehicle movement system, customs declaration service, um, the uh, trader support service, all of these things have not been tried and tested. This is a big question mark over uh, what happens next. And then in relation to the other unresolved uh, or key issues that need to be addressed, I just want to mention the three strands of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, because that is underpinning, of course, um, the, the rationale for the protocol in the first place. So first and foremost, Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive. The blame game 
is just it's 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 very live anyway in Northern Ireland. It's absolutely ripe for exploitation, uh, particularly in the event of a no deal and all that the insecurity uh, uh, that would arise from that. Um, Brexit is um, toxic. I know it's toxic in GB as well, but it's really toxic here. And you can just see very easily how um, uh, how unionists would blame Remainers for the existence of the protocol and bad things that inconveniences around that and how uh, Remainers would blame unionists, um, uh, uh, sorry, leavers for Brexit itself. So it's a really difficult matter. Huge pressures on the executive. Um, and the question would be, how would you maintain power sharing, especially in a situation of increasing polarisation? Another question in relation to that is, how will we scrutinise and shape the decisions that will be made that will affect Northern Ireland most directly? Um, this is a huge issue that hasn't been addressed yet, but it's going to become increasingly, um, uh, increasingly significant as a protocol continues in force as Northern Ireland is dynamically aligned to the EU um, and as GB diverges. Another area is of course, North-South cooperation, Article 11 of the protocol um, deals with that in fairly broad and vague ways, but essentially the question would be, okay, so you've guaranteed, you've wanting to maintain the conditions for North-South cooperation across broadcasting, inland fisheries, telecommunications, et cetera, et cetera. What, is that, what does that look like in practice? How will you do that? And how will you assess, assess whether you're managing to do that? Where are you getting the information um, from in order to assess whether you're doing that? This is a joint committee responsibility now. It's not just British Irish, it's not North South, it's UK EU responsibility. These are hugely important. And then finally, the third strand of course is the East-West relationship. We have the centenary year of Northern Ireland, the centenary of partition next year oh, in 2021. And um, interestingly enough, the Irish government has decided to implement a strategic review of the British-Irish relationship in the centenary year. Um, probably no, no time like the present. So the question would be from the UK side, what, what are you gonna do to protect that British-Irish relationship? How will you demonstrate a commitment to that British-Irish relationship upon which the peace process depends? Finally, overarching all of this, the fundamental question is how will the United Kingdom work with the European Union in the interests of Northern Ireland to achieve the objectives um, of the protocol um, as, a, as an ongoing joint concern, as a joint responsibility now. Um, that, that relationship of trust that is necessary for that will be all the more difficult in the event of an ODM. Thank you. Thank you, Katie, very much indeed. Well, we've covered quite a range. I do want to go to the questions which are already coming in from the audience, but I wonder if I could just kick off with a few uh, questions of my own. And uh, perhaps if I direct my first question to Jill and Tony together, uh, please. And that is that um, in these days leading up to, uh, to Sunday, you both described the choices of uh, deal and no deal very well indeed. Uh, but let me put to you a narrative about Brexit. That Brexit was born out of the uh, Conservative Parliamentary Party and it may finish with the Conservative Parliamentary Party. And my point is whether you think for the Prime Minister the costs of no deal are actually less for him in terms of the Conservative Parliamentary Party 
and that they may weigh those considerations may weigh more heavily on Boris as he calculates these uh, choices in the next few days than the wider um, aspects that we've uh, covered. Can I invite Jill and then Tony to respond? Okay, um, I have to say, I didn't totally agree with Tony about his analysis of politics. I'm a bit, um, bit nervous about not agreeing with, the, with Professor Travers on this, because, you know, uh, what do I know? Uh, but I think one of the things that's quite interesting is that I think Brexit has changed the Conservative Party. Maybe it's just accelerated a trend. But if you look at the sort of people, I think it's actually a trend over time. But the people who are now in the Conservative Party and the effect of last year's expulsions of what you might call the sort of moderate Remainers, ex-Remainers from the Conservative Party, has uh, has meant that Boris Johnson does indeed have a... Uh, quite different set of people behind him and I do think that the people at the moment who make the most noise are those who are primed to yell sell out what we can't tell I uh, whatsapped a friend of mine who's a conservative uh, sort of one nation person and said are you guys not putting any pressure on Boris that he has to do a deal and his line was yes but we're not making a noise about it because we don't want to be accused of undermining the UK's negotiating position. So I think there may actually be two factions, not in the cabinet, the cabinet's sort of pre-selected for loyalty and compliance. But I do think that if he fails to do a deal, we will hear from some people on the Conservative benches who have been quite quiet now. So I think this compounds the problem for the Prime Minister, that the party will be quite split on that. Um, but the party in the country uh, is probably more pro no deal, if anything. Uh, and that sort of difference, uh, my colleagues Tim Bale and Alan Wager and Will Jones done some work on the values of members, MPs and voters. Uh, and members are, are it's quite polarised. <laughs> we have quite extreme members in both political parties compared necessarily to their voters. So, uh, so I think okay. there's quite a lot of principal people there, but I'd be interested in what Tony thinks. Okay, thanks, Tony. I wonder, um, you know, next week in Parliament, uh, would Boris Johnson get an easier time with his backbenchers if he comes back with no deal rather than the deal? Well, uh, at the risk of giving an unhelpful answer, it, it slightly depends what the deal uh, amounted to. I mean, because it is possible that what we're living through now in the sort of uh, slightly pantomime season, will they, won't they, uh, end of the negotiations period, if it is the end, um, is, you know, all a bit of a smokescreen for a gentle climb down. I mean, that's, you can't deny that as a possibility. Um, so, you know, we, we, so it would be possible to argue we've done this great deal because the EU backed down at the last moment because we left it all right to that point. But just going back to, to Jill's um, reasonable questioning of my uh, excellent thesis, I mean, I was simply trying to highlight the fact that, in fact, that the, I think we're actually on the same page, really, because the Conservative Party 
has changed there's no doubt but it changes all the time and it changes to win and stay in power is my point and it's managing you know the question is is it changing in a way that leads to some terrible fallout of the kind that kevin your question is sort of referring to or is this yet another iteration and then this incredibly adaptable sub you know stanley baldwin plus party that always manages to reconfigure itself to reflect the future in a way that say the liberals didn't in the early part of the 20th century and i think that the the, the, the um the uh, you know the, the, the jury's out on that i mean Conservative MPs are more rebellious than, and as Phil Cowley's books pointed out, backbenchers have become more and more and more rebellious in recent years, way before Brexit, way before COVID. And, you know, there's an intriguing sub-issue here, which is, um, I'm sure Jill will have an explanation for this, why so many of the ERG types, the most pro-hard Brexit, are also the most anti-lockdown. That's a fascinating overlap. Um, so, you know, they're going to rebel on that issue next. Uh, in fact, they've already done it. So um, <clears throat> he clearly doesn't need factions within his party. But on the other hand, as he's discovered with COVID, the Labour Party will so support him. He, even if the Conservative Party splits on a deal, Labour will almost certainly support them. Their own numbers are big enough to get it through anyway, unless Labour opposed it. So, uh, you know, I think the, 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 the more intriguing question is in how does this all play out in the long term when the full impacts of no deal and some of vicky's slides are very interesting on this you know if the car industry is going to do as badly as vicky's um slides suggest which i mean those are the figures then you know places like sunderland I mean, the question is will the government have to step in to protect the car industry yeah. is that why they want all this freedom under the you know not so level playing field rules yes. and so on if Vicky is with us, could I uh, switch to the economic dimension? Is, is Vicky still with us? Perhaps we'll come back to the economic dimension, but Katie, can I uh, come to you? Uh, you finished on the theme uh, about the British-Irish relationship, and I wonder if we could just ask you to go a little bit further in terms of um, if the outcome is no deal, or if the outcome is a deal, what do you think is is uh, more likely to strengthen or weaken that relationship? Uh, and perhaps I'm thinking in particular about the Conservative Party. Uh, during this Brexit um, drama, of course, the relationship between the Conservative Party and the um, Ulster Unionists uh, became critical at various stages. And I wonder if the outcome is no deal or or a deal, how that impacts on that kind of uh, relationship? Yeah, so it's a fascinating question. Um, and this is always a challenge for unionists in, in Northern Ireland, like quite how much can they trust the British government? You know, where, where do they throw their lot in? And they certainly wouldn't do it with the Irish government. So instead of um, uh, hoping, pinning an awful lot of hope on uh, what the British government might do, um, and the reaction, you know, this week to the, the confirmation about the implementation of the protocol from unionism has been one of um, concern um, and, a, and sort of a repeated uh, sense of betrayal. Um, so we have those tensions um, in that relationship. Um, this is despite the fact that the Tory government has been um, very explicit in its pro-union um, 
sentiments and um, it's been striking actually quite how um, strong it's been on that point, um, almost to, you know, almost sort of neglecting the significance of nationalist identity and Irish identity and Irish citizenship in Northern Ireland. Um, that has been very much left up to the Irish government to, to emphasise, um, which hasn't necessarily been a very, um, you know, longer term. I don't think that's a, that's a really um, sustainable situation. Um, so the more you have a situation in which uh, the the two governments appear to um, represent two different communities in Northern Ireland. It's it's not good. It really should be in the joint interest of Northern Ireland. I mean, in terms of, I mean, on the high level and on the sort of immediate economic shock, no deal would be obviously a damaging thing to the British Irish relationship. Uh, and the high level, I mean, because Ireland has been absolutely unambiguous about its EU identity and it's really laying it on thick you know for good reason you know um, and so its interests lie with the EU and that's where it's going to be and if there's a no deal obviously that divergence between um, the EU and the UK will be reflected in the British-Irish relationship but longer term more direct challenges will be the fact that we just don't have those forums anymore um, in the for a wider range of government ministers and officials to in to, to mingle and to get that relationship um and um any you know official you speak to or indeed politician about the peace process in northern ireland which took a such a long time to develop and um, was very carefully developed a lot of that was just on familiarity um and the eu is a really important context for that and i think longer term we will really miss that sort of um day-to-day -day interaction um, at, a, at a very sort of practical level. Thanks, Katie. Um, Vicky, I wonder if we could uh, come to the economic uh, dimension. Um, let me put to you a, a narrative. Brexit was never about economics. Uh, people voted for other reasons. And uh, you've given a very expert and very clear uh, set of um, forecasts about uh, the implications of deal or no deal. Uh, but um, the point was made earlier that in the next year, in the medium term, uh, perhaps beyond, uh, the picture will become very, un very unclear. We've got uh, COVID, um, other extraneous factors uh, entering into it, etc. So from the point of view of the Brexit voter, it was never about economics. And in the next year or so, um, trying to assess the economic impact will be very, very difficult anyway. So it would not be a game changer. I think that's true if you're looking at the economic data, but it's not going to be true if you're looking at some of the disruption that is likely to take place. The fact that uh, it's going to cost businesses a lot more to be doing, uh, you know, to be selling to Europe than was the case before. It might also cost them a lot more bringing things in. Uh, although, of course, here, as you know, we're not going to have any proper checks for six months. Uh, we're only really going to be requiring a certificate if there are substances that we are controlling or trying to control, including alcohol, that are coming from, from Europe. So you have a little bit of a leeway. Yes, of course, we had uh, this morning uh, supermarkets saying that uh, costs are going to go up significantly um, if there is no deal because of tariffs. And they've also had disruptions in the ports because of some stockpiling that was taking place to avoid some of those tariffs which may come through in the future. Uh, so so that, that may indeed be the case. Um, but certainly in terms of selling, 
or any access to Europe, the number of certificates you require are quite significant for the road holders as well. They're going to have to be proving all sorts of things in terms of what they're carrying. They will need to have a passport to Kent uh, as well and exiting it as well. Um, so uh, there are definitely going to be a lot more barriers to trade. Now, will people feel that uh, immediately? Uh, perhaps. Perhaps they'll lose their jobs as a result. Uh, you know, maybe you know, firms aren't going to be bothering in the short term, I know hiring more people in those various areas. Maybe they will start changing their supply chains. Uh, so maybe they will have supply chains, particularly manufacturing, which are elsewhere. Maybe they will move their productions. It will take time. Some has happened already. And you're quite right that it's not going to be felt immediately. And that's why the stress in my slides was it's the medium to long term is where the impact will be felt. Um, not the no deal will be felt a lot earlier. The FTA a little bit later. Uh, but it's still going to be there and it's going to be reflected in negative investment growth in the sense that at least less than would otherwise have been the case. Yes, there'll be some onshoring, but there will be some areas where that can happen. Textiles is one that is very often mentioned is the one where this will happen. Uh, but I think overall, I think it means a dislocation means move things moving out and and you know i mentioned financial services they're not loved I and mean, then the voter doesn't really care but they do employ loads of people uh, directly and indirectly about two million i mean that is quite considerable if any of this changes people will feel it but you you're quite right the the vote to a considerable extent wasn't economics but nevertheless people were meant were made to feel that nothing much would change that they weren't really going to suffer economically and covid has confused the issue, of course, very significantly. It will, I think, take a few years before one realises maybe what one has given up. Thanks very much indeed. Let me now go to the many questions which are coming in. And I'm going to try to combine uh, two questions. Uh, there's a very specific question uh, for Katie, which is from uh, Anne Dayton in Oxford, I think. Um, so to Katie. If you look ahead, say five years or so, would you assert that for Belfast, the gravitational pull will increasingly be to Dublin rather than to London? If so, is this driven by politics as much as economics? And then the question, uh, I think for Tony and uh, Jill, if I may, is from Kevin Kerrigan, which says that, um, uh, I'm sorry, that's the, that's the wrong question, which is uh, from John Newham. Uh, will Brexit be a catalyst for the breakup of the UK? So let's start with Katie on Northern Ireland and then Tony and Jill on breakup of the UK. Katie. Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's an assumption, particularly particularly on the EU side, that uh, yeah, sort of the gravitational pull towards the EU single market will be will will naturally um, change the shape of Northern Ireland's economy um, and uh, you know that that advantage that Northern Ireland has will be exploited down in, in over time um, so specifically on that question I, I I would have some doubts about that even aside from the politics uh, partly because um, it takes a lot of time. Also, partly the fact that we have this consent vote in four years' time, and then potentially every four years, or at least every eight years, um, around those around the arrangements for the protocol. So it's not as if, you know, longer term that we can be absolutely confident that this will be Northern Ireland's situation. 
Um, that element of doubt um, is definitely present, certainly for the first five years, I would imagine. Um, but who knows? And then more broadly on the political sense, um, the only way you can see Northern Ireland is really, it's, you know, it's integrated to Britain, it's integrated into Ireland. This is why we are where we are. Um, and this is what the Good Friday Agreement tried to balance and manage. And that was possible in the context of the EU. There is a risk um, with the protocol and with the situation that we're entering now that it will just, rather than going one particular direction, it'll just sort of spin. Uh, and then you have the centrifugal forces within Northern Ireland that will just sort of uh, lead to increasing um, pressure, i.e. wouldn't go anywhere in particular, <laughs> um, uh, uh, which is very uncomfortable for many people. So I don't know, I think, this is why I go back to that British-Irish relationship and the need for very clear decision um, follow, followed up by action on the part of the British government about that British-Irish relationship. This is important um, and it needs to be important that North-South cooperation economically, politically, civically is not politicised just as Northern Ireland's place in the UK internal market is facilitated in mean, you know meaningful, serious ways and why the UK government needs to recognise the importance of devolution um, not just in Northern Ireland, indeed across uh, the uh, across the UK, um, but it simply is a way of keeping the UK together. Thank you. That uh, leads us nicely to Jill and Tony on um, the possible breakup of the UK. It, I know it's a huge question. The audience knows it's a huge question. But can I invite you to give a, a fairly brief answer, please? Uh, Jill, do you want to start? OK, brief answer. Uh, the sort of Brexit we're going to have makes the economic case for independence much harder, the practical case much harder, because you get back to the same issues of the border that has been so troubling for uh, GB and Northern Ireland, where you don't have the advantage of a sea between Scotland and England, but it makes the identity case much stronger. And that's going to be the battle lines. Thank you. Tony? Yes, I certainly agree that the uh, dismal struggle over the last uh, four years that's still ongoing would certainly make some, I would imagine, some Scottish voters wonder just how difficult that would be. And of course, uh, Scotland, them would be, imagine chopping the debt up after recent events. I mean, the, the scale of the debt that Scotland would begin with, the share of the UK's debt. So I think there are some very serious practical issues. And that's even before you get to the EU's attitude to Scotland applying to join the European Union if it left the United Kingdom, all very uncertain. So, as I said, I think the it's a bit more difficult for the SNP than it looks, because although recent polling has shown Leave winning against Remain within the UK, uh, quite by some margin, I still think for the SNP, if they were to hold a, sec hold a second referendum and not win it, that could be quite damaging in the long term for the entire SNP project. So they've got to be really certain that when they hold this referendum, they win it. So I think it's um, not quite as obvious this will go one way, i.e. towards independence of the breakup of the union, as it's sometimes portrayed. OK, thank you. Uh, Vicky, if I may, there are two economic questions, and perhaps you could um, address the, the two together. Uh, so there's a question from Richard Carpenter, which says, uh, 
how competitive would the UK be? We don't seem to manufacture or provide anything anymore. And the other uh, question from Yancey Westerfield is to say that there's been a lot of rubbishing in recent times of the gravity model of trade. Uh, do you think that the idea of this model is still relevant? And what consequences is it going to have for the UK in the medium term, given that even with a deal, there will be trade disruption and there is a clear desire to diverge from the EU in as many ways as possible. So if you could uh, perhaps com combine the two questions. Firstly, how competitive is the UK going to be anyway? And secondly, are we still in our forecasts uh, following a gravitational model? Is that still worthwhile? Okay, on, the, on the first one, we still produce quite a lot of things. Um, so we have, uh, we had uh, quite a strong car manufacturing sector, for example. Uh, there's quite a lot of innovation that is still there. Yes, you know, the car manufacturers have now been saying, A, they haven't been producing as much because of uh, COVID, but also diesel and other scandals and uh, uh, the, the, the trade disputes that the US in particular had with China and China not buying our cars, that sort of stuff. Uh, but that, that should be sorting itself out. Uh, but they're very worried about, about uh, no deal in particular and FTA more generally. Um, so who knows what will happen there? We have a strong service sector. Uh, quite strong financial sector, of course. So um, we uh, have quite a lot that we do produce, so we mustn't get too depressed about this. Nevertheless, it's absolutely true that we haven't been investing enough and that we have been losing in relation to other countries. So productivity has suffered, our competitiveness has suffered. And what I fear is that whether we have no deal or an FTA, if you're actually looking at where our trade will be going in the future, and that's very much linked with this, the second question, it still uh, would have to depend on what happens with our closest neighbours. The gravity model works, in my view. It is. It has already proved that this is how things move in any case. Uh, we are very dependent on countries that are close to us. We're very dependent on, on the EU, and we sell 45% of our goods and services to them. No other place... Uh, is, is you know, admittedly there are individual differences in terms of the countries, but no other place uh, uh, can can uh, if you like receive as many of the goods that we produce. And all those trade deals that we are arranging now have a minimal impact in terms of making up for any loss in our trade. And that is particularly true in the area of services, um, where we do have a positive uh, balance of payments on services overall and we earn quite a lot from service exports to the EU I and mean, remember we are the major area uh, for firms uh, non-financial corporations in Europe to raise money whether it's in the debt market or in the equity market for example we are the main derivative traders we do most of the foreign exchange trade you know, dealing here and so on um, so so that is uh, uh, of great concern, plus, of course, quite a lot of our business services that have developed around the financial sector, and they will also suffer because they've done incredibly well uh, selling the services in Europe, even though there are still issues with some of the qualifications and acceptances across, which will get worse, of course, with this. Now, what do we do in the future to remain competitive? Well, it's very interesting because uh, listening, as one does to every bit of news about, about Brexit or anything now, uh, not just because one does it all from home, but also because uh, this is the, the thing of the, of the day, 
of the week, of the year, of the last four years on Brexit, the, the CBI chief economist today was saying, what we need is more investment and then we'll sort out problems. Well, how are you going to get that unless you have a clear path ahead and you have no impediments to growth? You can spend loads of money as government if you can continue to borrow, um, but you still need the private sector to deliver the, the innovation that you need. So I'm afraid on the looking at prospects for trade, uh, and looking for where the UK will be with any deal that may come, um, we're going to be at a competitive disadvantage for some time to come in relation to other countries, in relation to Europe and others. I mean, Europe is investing heavily in green. We're not doing it anything like as much as we should do, despite what the Prime Minister may be trying to convince us he's doing. So I think we're going to have a weak pound. And the only way that we're going to survive in the short to medium term will be with the pound, despite the fact that, you know, it might strengthen if we have a deal, will then need to be weak in order to continue to provide us with some of the revenues that we want from our exports. But it's not a long-term solution, so I do worry. Okay. Whilst we're with the economic theme, I wonder if I can just ask a, a further question to Vicky, but just briefly, please. This is from Kevin Kerrigan, formerly of the Foreign Office and formerly of UCREP in Brussels, um, and he refers to the EU's contingency plan that was released today, uh, and he says, does that plan, if implemented, change any of your economic projections of a no-deal at all? Just briefly. Well, the contingency plan is short-term, as far as I understand it, and so we're carrying on with a number of things as we were before, which is rather nice. So, so for me, it would be rather nice if we had in effect, um, at some point agreed this month, a continuation of the transition period so that we can sort some of these things out in terms of how they would work in practice. So let's hope that this leads to, to that. Thank you. Uh, could I um, add a question here for Jill, uh, please? We've been talking about uh, no deal as a, as a scenario, uh, but can I pick up on your experience with Institute for Government and in, in Whitehall? And uh, could you give us a comment on, at this stage, how prepared you think Whitehall is for a no deal? Um, well, I think one of the things to remember is that deal and no deal aren't very different uh, from the point of view of disruption and things like that. The big difference is tariffs. But in terms of the systems you need in place, managing the ports, uh, managing the changes for individuals, all of those things are the same for deal and no deal. Uh, I did a podcast on this last week. Uh, talking about the collision of Brexit and COVID, and maybe we've seen the Cabinet Office's worst-case scenario of adding in flooding, maybe adding in another animal health disease, all of which could happen next month. Um, so I'd recommend that. So IG podcast, Claire Moriarty's through the Permanent Secretary at DexEU and DEFRA, and Tom O'Riordan, Chief Executive of Leeds City Council, quite a flood-prone council. He's also been working in Test and Trace. And it really is quite stretching. Government, I think, uh, thinks that it is as ready as it possibly can be. But as Katie said, they've got systems there, but they haven't done the end-to-end -end testing you might have liked to have seen. But the real worry, uh, as it has been throughout the year, is that businesses aren't ready and therefore will not be ready to comply. And actually, even if we got a deal... A lot of businesses won't be ready to take advantage of a deal. The big difference is tariffs. 
to have tariffs, you need to have your rules of origin documentation ready. If you've only done business with the EU before, you won't have set up those systems necessarily. Um, Michael Gove said people are 80% ready. We know their capacity constraints and things like customs agents and stuff like that. So it's going to be a bumpy time. I think the cabinet office thinks you won't get maximum bumpiness in the first week or two because of the stockpiling effects we're noting. Uh, it'll start to kick in from sort of mid-January. You'll see probably more, uh, more problems when people have run down their stocks and things like that. But I think you know, the government last year was thinking three to six months of potential difficulty before people start properly adjusting. But we know that the bandwidth in business has also been very constrained, as has cash flow, by the needing to manage COVID at the same time. That's one reason why lots of people thought the government might take the option of uh, seeking the extension, which they had the right to do until the end of June. Thanks. Uh, Tony, if I could come to you. Um, Anthony, an LSE uh, alumnus, asks, uh, how are things shaping up for the UK rejoining? And how are things looking for the Liberal Democrats? Um, and I guess part of the question is to say that uh, if Labour backs uh, a Boris deal, does this create a space uh, for the Liberal Democrats uh, to promote the uh, re-entry option? And how do you think that might might play? So really the question is, um, what do you think the party politics are looking for, looking like in terms of um, an agenda, a campaign for rejoining? And where does it leave the Liberal Democrats? Well, uh, and I'm sorry I didn't talk about the Liberal Democrats. Uh, partly, I'm afraid the fact I didn't tells you something about the way I'm about to go with this answer, which is, uh, you know, given the trauma from their point of view of the coalition and then the, uh, well, after the coalition, and then the failure to be able to exploit being the one true party of Remain in the British two-party system, which it still is, um, I think that their chances you know, and their opinion poll ratings remain such as to suggest it's going to take them some years to rebuild. Chances of a rejoining movement, I mean, there'll be one, I'm sure. Chances of it getting anywhere, I'd say, as near to naught as um, you can reasonably be in, in any society. And the reason for that is, um, you know, I've always wondered whether President de Gaulle didn't kind of get this right and that the British joining the EU was always going to be difficult. And I suspect the EU itself will see that. Um, and, you know, I just don't see the consequences of Brexit being as visibly bad or bad enough at any point suddenly to make there be an enormous change of view, partly because if it is go badly wrong, it'll all be blamed on the European Union by Brexiteers. So I, I just think the only constructive way for, forward for British politics, in my own view now, is to think to the medium term and how to construct a relationship with the EU that works in the long term from outside, which is a, a deliverable idea. And there's nobody thinking about it much yet. Well, thanks. Um, that perhaps uh, connects with the question from um, Mike O'Donnell another LSE uh, alumnus, and it's in the context of 
uh, figures like Peter Mandelson, Lord Mandelson, saying that uh, the Remainers, after the referendum, got it uh, wrong and have um, encouraged a hard Brexit uh, by disputing the referendum, by calling for a re second referendum, uh, etc. And um, Michael Donald's question is, uh, does the panel, so this is for the panel, does the panel think that many will regret not supporting Theresa May's deal? Uh, Jill, do you want to start off on that? Okay, well, this is uh, the... Uh, Anand Manan and I didn't write um, Peter Mandelson's article in The Guardian, um, but we did write something called Who Kills Soft Brexit for Prospect, which has uh, has caused a lot of Twitter agonising uh, about this, uh, about who is responsible for the sort of Brexit we have. I think there is undoubtedly... There are undoubtedly some... Labour leavers, some Labour people who thought they ought to back the result of the referendum, who now realise that had they managed to sustain not just the Theresa May withdrawal deal, though it actually had quite a lot of hooks that arguably would have led to a softer form of Brexit. Theresa May set out very harsh red lines at Lancaster House, but then proceeded to row back from them to some extent, certainly by checkers, she was uh, softening a bit on some of them, they're not all, um, who now think they actually would be in a happier place with the sort of protections that Theresa May was prepared to offer up to get her withdrawal agreement through. There is, of course, the interesting question of if she'd done that, could she have stayed leader of the Conservative Party and wouldn't we have ended up in the same place anyway? There's also the question of could you actually... You know, and a lot of people cite Jeremy Corbyn as a big barrier to this. Could you actually have had some way in which Parliament, you know, last year could have kept the government on life support for longer and forced uh, a different sort of Brexit? Um, so I think there's some very interesting questions. I think a really interesting question, and this is sort of, you know, for, for Tony as a professor of political science, is... It is quite interesting that a such a narrowly split decision, uh, the sort of 52-48 in our system, has sort of ended up in what you can only say is the most stunning victory for the European Research Group and their supporters. They were in the 2015 and the 2017 parliaments quite a minority, a minority in the Conservative Party and a distinct minority in Parliament. And yet they have pulled off the most tremendous mm. coup. Mm. And you either have to think they are absolutely the most brilliant people with a direct line into the mental state of the British people. Or you have to think that some other people, you know, also perhaps help them along to that. But I'd be very interested. Okay, thanks. In, Tony. Uh, Tony. Um, Thanks. Uh, the, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thanks for that, Jill. Um. <laughs> the initial the initial question was: uh, Do we regret uh, Theresa May's deal not passing? Well, you know, like uh, we, we all love counterfactuals, and it's a good one to to, to mull on. It's not really a, it was a factual at one point. It's now become a counterfactual. Um, I, I agree with Jill's analysis. I think it is conceivable uh, that if enough people who didn't want a hard Brexit had coalesced behind Theresa May's world, you know, softer worldview as it evolved, probably it would have been possible to get that through 
and that would have led to a softer Brexit than the one we're going to get. But um, but it is now in 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 you know buried in history. Um, and on the, I think the, the the fact that you know median voters didn't really get a look in on this one, did they? Um, hard line voters got got what they want, and that I think has something to do with the interplay of certainly in in Britain, and it's rather different in Northern Ireland, but the operation of the first-past-the-post voting system and the bloc parties trying to deal with an issue that cuts across those two parties uh, and chops them in half. And, it, and uh, you know, the, the fact that in the, particularly in the 2017 election, um, Brexit led to resurgence of two-party voting up to 83% suddenly again, having dropped into the 60s at one point, tells us that it's there's something in the nature of the way first-past-the-post plurality voting works and produces um, the party system it does has impacted on Brexit and vice versa. And I think that explains how small groups within our political system can occasionally get what they want uh, in a way that wouldn't be possible with a different voting system. Okay, good. Um, I'm concerned about time, so if colleagues uh, will permit me, can I um, move on to another question? And I think it's uh, on the economics, Vicky, if I may. This is from Maximilian Conrad, who's joining us from Munich. Um, and he says, uh, is there also something positive you might be able to identify from Brexit, either deal or no deal? You've given us a very pessimistic outlook. Uh, can we identify anything positive from a deal or no deal? Well, in the interest of time, I will answer it very quickly. No. <laughs> I find you. it very difficult to think of anything positive. Maybe others can from a political point of view, but uh, from an economic point of view, uh, with great difficulty. Can I just add again, I was trying to hint at this at the beginning. I think that is, you know, it's what's happened has happened. And, and what slightly shocks me is the failure of government to articulate some form of future plan for the economy that moves on and gives the UK a chance to grow in this new and different position. And at the moment, in many ways, as with COVID, the policy seems to be just to sit and see what happens and then react to it. Okay, so but okay. perhaps the answer should be maybe in the longer term there could be something we can do, but for the moment there is no sign of that. Okay, I don't, I don't agree with Ricky, um, and I think we actually need to get out of that mindset. Um, I think potentially the reforms to the common agricultural policy that Michael Gove put forward, that the government's moving to, frankly, if you can't do better than the CAP, then you've got a real problem. And I think we've spent years carping about it. So let's show that we actually can. I think, yeah, I think farmers might regret it because you might decide not to spend so much money on agriculture. But I think that's a good thing. And I do think there is underlyingly a very good thing for our political culture, which is that taking back control means taking back responsibility. It's why it'd be very unfortunate if we just get into a situation where we blame the EU for everything we don't like. And yeah, it's one of the reasons actually why I'm sometimes quite pro-Scottish independence. I think actually having a position where we can take our own decisions and hold our politicians accountable could be good after years of erecting a straw man bogeyman in the shape of the European Union. 
And I think actually it's quite interesting. Nick Bowles today, um, former Conservative MP, Remainer, was tweeting that actually, if you look at this year, the EU may be better off without us as well. The UK would have spent the year trying to go slow on things like the COVID recovery fund, getting in the way of quite a lot of things. And I think actually in the longer run, if both can get over this, we could have a healthier and more positive relationship between both. Okay. Tony, I wonder if I could uh, squeeze in the question from Paul Hallis uh, and uh, invite you to respond to that. Uh, and uh, he says, if there is no uh, free trade agreement, how would you assess the political consequences of us seeing long lines of lorries in Kent on the TV news every evening and other media reports on the practical consequences of no deal? I could imagine in a few weeks' time you being invited on the BBC to answer this precise question. Well, it, it, it's interesting that the Operation Brock and the you know the need to have mobile toilets in Kent has kind of captured the public imagination in a way that all the rather more detailed stuff that Jill was referring to about whether the computer systems operate hasn't. Um, and I think that's a problem in terms of getting the message across oddly, because one thing that the that the pictures of lines of trucks do or will will have done is convinced some businesses to take a bit more uh, make a bit more effort to get their paperwork in order than than would otherwise have come the case been the case. The actual advertising the government's done has been so soft because they didn't want to imply that there was anything wrong with Brexit. It's got to say, well, things are going to change on January the 1st, as if that's going to get anybody uh, to do very much. So I think that uh, the, the, the big question is, do the lines of, I mean, the fact is the government can rely on supermarkets for a very, to a significant degree. Supermarkets are brilliant at logistics. They will have found ways around lots of these problems and they still will. So I, 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 we'll see whether the lines of trucks and the Kent passport um, produces any kind of super political reaction. But again, I would expect that to be blamed on the EU if it happens and is bad. Um, and at some level, it will be true. That's the trend, to be absolutely honest. So um, let me try to um, we can always rely on Waitrose ultimately. Yeah. Um, let me try to squeeze in one last uh, question, uh, which has uh, come in and to invite each of you to uh, give a very quick uh, answer, please. And that is quite simply. How long do you think it will be before the UK seeks to rejoin the European Union? Vicky? Ten years. Ten years. Jill? Uh, depends if the EU changes dramatically and has to, but in its current state, not, uh, not in my lifetime. Katie? Um, I probably want to be a bit controversial and say I think... There won't be a UK before uh, whatever's left of it tries to join the EU. <laughs> That's a great point to raise. Uh, sadly, at the very end, uh, Tony, quickly. I don't think the UK will rejoin the EU. And I don't, as I said earlier, I, I think that it's working with where we've got to and making something out of that that will be the future for politics. That's great. We are uh, about to run out of uh, time, but can I uh, thank everyone for their participation? And um, I suppose it's uh, the discussion is just simply underscoring that Brexit isn't just for Christmas, 
it's going to continue. And um, of course, the LSE programme on Brexit and beyond uh, will continue um, in the remainder of this academic year and beyond. And you can find out information by simply Googling LSE programme on Brexit and beyond. Uh, let me thank uh, Jill, Tony, Vicky and Katie for their contributions. And let me thank uh, the audience for their uh, various questions. My apologies, we could go not get through all of them. There were many questions coming in. And thank you to the audience. We've had a very large audience for this final 2020 um, discussion on Brexit. But of course, it's a series. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>